Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com What if we could take people completely out of the equation when planning military strikes? Does it sound like a good idea to remove humans from one side of war? Lethal autonomous weapon systems use artificial intelligence to identify, select, and kill human targets without human intervention. Take military drones, for example. For now, the decision to strike is usually made by human operators. Yet in the future, lethal autonomous weapons may take the decision to kill a human without a human being in the loop of control to make that decision. So this is robots, computers, taking the decision about whether or not a human should live or die. According to one UN report, not only do such technologies already exist, but they've already been deployed in battle. So, how does this technology work? And what are the dangers of these weapons spreading around the world? Well, it's the Easter holiday in the UK, so to find out, I've turned to an episode we recorded with Amelia Javorsky, an expert from the Future of Life Institute. As you'll have seen last month, it was the Future of Life Institute who issued an important warning signed by Elon Musk and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak about the perils of AI. Together, Amelia and I go through these worrying possibilities for our future and lay out some of the technical details about autonomous weapons. Hi, Amelia. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me, James. I'm thrilled to be here. Not a problem at all. Where are you speaking to us from in the world? So I am speaking to you from chilly Boston, Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm stateside. I'm not that far away from you. And it is bizarrely chilly. But when I arrived, it was super warm. And then today it has gone snow, sun, snow, sun, snow, sun. And if you need a reminder that climate change is in full swing, I think this is certainly it. Indeed, yes. You need to be prepared to wear like one of those big puffer coats and sandals within the same trip. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. But uh, when it comes to existential threats to the future of humanity, we're not here to talk about climate change. We're here to talk about lethal autonomous weapons. So really an equally cheery subject, isn't it, Amelia? Indeed, yeah. It's it's really a pick-me-up type of topic. I first came across your work when, I'm sure like so many other people, I watched Slaughterbots. And as someone who works on drone warfare, the history of warfare, air power and everything in between, I shouldn't be easily disturbed. But the idea of these Slaughterbots, as they were called, with facial recognition technology that can hoover up your metadata, find out your political persuasion from what you're tweeting or what you're putting on Facebook, and then to proceed to assassinate you based on that facial recognition technology, well, um, it definitely gave me pause for thought. I suppose the first question to start with is, is this a realistic portrayal of where we are with lethal autonomous weapons? Yes. So part of the reason we chose to make the film Slaughterbots in the first place was to really ground viewers in an emergent threat that is coming at a rate that is 
far more quick than any of us would imagine. So when we talk about things like slaughterbots or weapons that are powered by artificial intelligence, many people assume that this is stuff of sci-fi, right? I've seen this in a science fiction movie. I've seen Terminators running around. That is something of the far future. But the reason we chose to make the films is actually that this is a near future overlapping almost with present day technology. And to really wake people up to the idea that this is not something of science fiction. This is something that is here and could easily be enabled by the technology and weapon systems that are on the battlefield today. Okay, so take us back a little bit in history. This is a history podcast after all. How much of a sea change has there been in the autonomous capability? of weapon systems. And when did this take place? Because when we look back at even the most recent history, we can go back to the 1970s and the 1980s and what we call the revolution in military affairs. We're seeing here the advancement of microprocessing of much later on the launch of satellites that allowed global positioning systems and of course the ever smaller creation of cameras that could be fitted into things like drones which are seen as a gateway weapon, an entry weapon into lethal autonomous systems. And this meant that drones could be controlled all around the world from thousands of kilometres away. But what's the difference between that level of technology in the 70s and 80s and where we are now? In our thinking about the history of sort of autonomous weapons, now one could argue that the earliest embodiment of an autonomous weapon could trace its roots back to the landmine, the humble landmine that we think about. Because when we think about what is an autonomous weapon, it is a weapon system that selects and engages a target based on some sort of sensor data without human input. And so in its crudest form, that's kind of what a landmine does, right? Your sensor system there just isn't a terribly sophisticated one, right? It is a weight-based sensor system. When we think about the core elements, you can start to see those in some of those like early embodiments like landmines. When we think about what we're talking about today, it's smart autonomous weapon systems. And the smart in there comes from the use of artificial intelligence to help make these target identification selection and kill decisions. And so the earliest sort of, I would say, modern genesis of that starts with unmanned drones, right? And it's beginning to integrate artificial intelligence capabilities into drones that are human operated and human piloted. And so the earliest sort of integration of AI systems into these weapons types was for things like improving target identification, using image processing to provide the operator with a more accurate picture of sort of what's going on on the ground, things that the human eye wouldn't innately start to pick up. And what we've seen since then is a slippery slope towards ever increasing the AI capabilities of these systems. So while in these early systems, you really have the human operator in the driver's seat in looking at how these drones are operated and used on the battlefield, the more we sort of start to remove the human from the loop and start to rely on the AI to make decisions. And so I would argue that the next generation from just the standard sort of human operated drone with AI helping to make provide information about what's happening on the ground is what we've seen in loitering munition type systems. So these are systems that 
use AI that are released by a human operator with a very specific target, but in an area where the AI ultimately decides where to sort of engage that target, right? So this is a very bounded use case. But what's scary about that is you're starting to remove the human being and the human agency and human judgment from weapon system behavior. And so the next step sort of on this slippery slope is what we think of as fully autonomous weapon systems, which is the AI system is deployed into a setting, the weapon is deployed into a setting, and the AI is making the decision of target identification, selecting that target, and engaging that target without a human being being involved. And that's scary for a lot of reasons, because A, there's the ethical dimensions of why that's highly problematic, because it essentially amounts to seeding life and death decisions to software. But then there's also the dimension of now human beings and human judgment and weapon systems are decoupled. And now you've just turned this into very much a technology problem, which enables scale and speed of deployment of these weapon systems that is now decoupled from a human being. So throughout history, if you have a human being and a machine gun or a human being operating a drone, it's very much a one-to-one ratio. But when you take the human being out of the loop and the decision-making for that weapon is now software and it's partnered with hardware, you basically said this can operate at a scale and at a speed that is now decoupled from the amount of human soldiers and operators. And there's a whole host of risks that we can talk about that are emergent from that particular property. And have we seen that deployed on the battlefield yet? Because it strikes me if we go back just a few months, I think, to the middle of last year, there was a case where allegedly Israel had placed a facial recognition machine gun at the side of a road to strike out an Iranian nuclear scientist on Iranian soil. Is that a true lethal autonomous weapon that removes the human from the loop of control? Based on the media reporting around that, we have no way to verify if there was or was not a human being in the loop, but it certainly illustrates the potential. Because if the software is smart enough and has the facial recognition capacity and is linked to an explosive, you have the ingredients there for a fully autonomous weapon. The first real sort of documented use case of a lethal autonomous weapon was back in a report that came out based from the UN Security Council on activities in Libya. And in this particular report, they document the use of a lethal autonomous weapon on retreating Haftar forces. And that system in particular, it's called the Cargu 2 system. It's a small sort of drone embodiment. It's not a big, sophisticated, looks a little bit like a quadcopter, to be quite frank, that has a kinetic capability to it and is equipped with AI. And so early advertising on that system talked about its autonomous capabilities, and also, you know, plans to potentially integrate that with facial recognition. So we are certainly seeing the early signs of these technologies being able to enter the battlefield. So this is where a drone system fitted with this quite high-tech computation capability and a preset algorithm that allows it to make decisions about who should live or die is sent up into the air by a human being, perhaps in their ones or twos or in the future, maybe hundreds. They can hover around the battle space looking for those pre-identified targets that are in their database. They can identify them 
take that target out and all without the human having to be involved in that decision-making process. That is correct. And I would add a step further there that it doesn't even have to be at the specific level of an individual. The target is whatever the target profile is that the software is programmed to look for. So it could be as specific as I have a database of facial recognition profiles and I want you to find weapon system these particular people and engage and kill these people. But it could also be something, and this is what keeps me up at night personally on this issue, a lot less specific than that. It can be thermal signature for human beings that are in this area. It could be people who appear to be male, appear to be female, appear to be of a certain age. And so you can imagine how this gets quite scary quite quickly, that it is a matter of software decisions that determine how these systems are used and who they go after on the battlefield. And if we go back to that history, we've seen that in the past there have been some truly terrible consequences from those similar signature strike-based calculations of who should be a target in war and who shouldn't. So if we go back to the Obama administration and the later days of the Bush administration as well, then you start to see the way in which terrorists were being identified and killed was based upon this so-called called signature list. These characteristics that made up a terrorist. So put simply, they were often males because the only people that were said to fight were men. They were of fighting age, which was said to be anything from 14 years old and above. And they were conducting terrorist acts. Activity. And that could be, I don't know, digging a hole at the side of a road to plant an IED, or it could be training for militant activities. But that's so broad and so difficult to identify purely from drone-based intelligence, purely from the grainy camera footage that we had back then, that the joke going around the Pentagon that I was told at the time was that a group of young boys doing star jumps could be seen as a terrorist training camp. And it's as a result of that that you started to get some confirmation bias that has been well documented with drone pilots that I've spoken to who fully understand the flaws of this type of targeting strategy and have moved away from that in recent years. But you had, for example, strikes on wedding parties and on funerals. And so is what you're saying here is that if we take these flawed, and we know they're flawed from the history of this, these flawed metrics of calculating targets, and we simply roughly put them into the minds of weapon systems, then surely we're just going to be making the same human mistakes just at the hands, the wings, the rotors of a drone or some other such system. I would even take that a step further and say, is it actually possible to create a set of rules that are a target and engagement rules that actually perform the way that you think it will on the battlefield? And so I think this is a key thing when we think about these systems. And in the example you just gave, you pointed to human judgment as a place to say like, hey, the AI is telling me one thing, but I'm looking at the contextual situation here and my knowledge of being a human being, this particular target is clearly not a target, right? 
AI systems do not have that contextual knowledge, especially in the types of settings like battlefields that are highly dynamic, very difficult to simulate, right? These are systems that are going to be trained on some data set. We can look to many examples in civilian applications of AI, like in facial recognition. And we know we train facial recognition systems on a data set, and then you deploy them in real-world settings and realize, actually, this doesn't perform the way that it did in this nicely, tightly bounded laboratory setting. And it tends to misidentify people who don't look like the people that were captured in the data set that we had and trained the AI system on. So I would argue that it is very difficult, if not potentially impossible, to come up with a prescriptive way of telling an AI system, hey, this is who you go and find, and that is actually going to be a legitimate target to engage under international humanitarian law. And we've even seen this with the ICRC and their position statement on this is they pretty much agree that, listen, existing international humanitarian law that we have is insufficient to start to govern some of the emerging threats that this particular technology poses to society. So yeah, I would say that is a terribly difficult thing to program into a system. It's also very variable, right? So it's software at the end of the day. And software is something that is always a software update away from changing. So when people talk about the profile that you would input into these systems, they're thinking about the profile that they would input into the systems, not the profile that their adversaries would put in or non-state actors would put in or sort of people with different values and ethics systems would put in. And the reality is these types of systems are not terribly sophisticated or expensive to make at the end of the day. It's software and fairly cheap hardware, which means there's a pretty high risk of proliferation. And so lots of people will get their hands on this, both states and likely non-state actors alike. And so we really have to think through whose values and whose profiles are being put into these systems and deployed in the world. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
So much like we're seeing more basic rudimentary drones spreading to an array of hostile state and non-state actors. I think at this point in time, there is at least 102 different nation states that have a military drone program. And from my latest calculations, around 63 non-state actors that have varying levels of drone technologies, including Houthi rebels who have the ability to send drones and precision missiles over a thousand kilometers. And we've, we've seen that most recently with missile attacks, for example, on the, on the Formula One in Saudi Arabia. And of course, on Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, on the airport there and on industrial sites. So what you're saying here is that we might be concerned with the proliferation of dumb drones now, but as we move to the future, that no technology stays in the hands with the nation that created it. And how far in the future you could be predicting this, but in the nearish future, we're looking at a world where these smart weapons that are potentially far more lethal and guarantee death and destruction could spread to hostile states and non-state actors. Yes, and my prediction for that is that is likely to happen quite quickly as soon as these weapon systems are actually mass produced. We look at these and the proliferation risk of these weapon systems a lot more like AK-47s than we think of military like fighter jets, for example. Anytime something, again, is scalable, is cheap and is mass producible, there is a very high proliferation risk there. And I think one of the common fallacies when thinking about AI-enabled weapon systems like slaughterbots is, oh, this is probably technologically super sophisticated and therefore very expensive and therefore has a low proliferation risk, when it's actually the opposite. These things are not terribly difficult to make and, and likely manufacture and have a very high proliferation risk, which is also why these early warning signs to us, this is an issue that follows a trajectory that looks a lot more like the proliferation of technologies, right? When you think about that exponential curve of cell phone adoption, right? Or, or something like that. And because of that risk of rapid proliferation, that's why we really need to act early and thinking about what to do about these systems when seeing early warning signs. Because the idea is that these things could proliferate actually far more quickly than I think the average person would anticipate. So how do we begin to think about controlling these technologies and perhaps mitigating this pretty disturbing, disquieting future? Because you could think it's as simple as telling the nation states who are developing these weapons, well, make sure that you keep your security good and don't pass them on to terrorists and non-state actors. But isn't the reality of the case that often it can be quite beneficial for some states to pass on high-tech systems to non-state actors who can then do their bidding for them around the world. So this is a deliberate proliferation as opposed to something being stolen from a lab or escaping and being hacked. This is a conscious choice. So I would argue that proliferation of these types of weapon systems is not in the interest of international stability or security for any state, and especially major military powers. Again, I think a, similar to the values question and the profile question, people tend to think, what would be my capability if I had these systems versus imagining a world in which everyone has these systems and what that does to the existing world order. And so we've started to see the seeds of this in the recent Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, where you saw that 
fairly cheap suicide drones. Now, mind you, these were not slaughterbots. These were systems that still had a human in the loop and operating them remotely, were able to take out fairly sophisticated military equipment. And the idea that these types of systems, just by the numbers game, could compete with major militaries is very destabilizing to the existing, certainly major superpower security paradigm. And also the paradigms of states in general, right? The idea of having dissident groups in any state, there is a dissident group of some type. There is some sort of non-state bad actor having this capability in their hands is quite destabilizing to the state itself. And so I think encouraging a real global view of what does a world look like when we choose to go down this path and realizing this is not actually in any individual state and is certainly not the major military powers best interest. So is there any realistic possibility of there being a ban on lethal autonomous weapons? I know there is an organisation that's looking to ban killer robots, as they call it. And when I was working closely with the United Nations looking at drone proliferation and trying to figure out ways in which we could reduce that, it was certainly one thing we were looking towards was trying to set up some sort of framework structure that could be broadly applicable to also including laws, lethal autonomous weapons. Is this something that is continuing to progress at the UN? Or is there just such disagreement between nation states that there's a stalemate around this? So this is actually an area we've seen a tremendous amount of progress and convergence on within the UN ecosystem. So this is a fairly new issue for the United Nations as far as disarmament goes, right? Uh, They're accustomed to thinking on issues in decade-long terms, right? And just with the pace of technology and technological development, they've had to think about this with a little bit more urgency and We could see from where the UN started on this issue. So this issue originated uh, with a man named Christoph Haynes in a report on extrajudicial killings. And that was then referred to the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, which is a name that always befuddles me, but the CCW for short. And there was a group of governmental experts that took up this issue and have been debating it over several years. And when we saw those conversations begin in the early days, it was still a question of what are we talking about? Are we talking about, as my dear colleague uh, Stuart Russell, who's written a lot on this issue, and especially of the scalability problems with lethal autonomous weapons, says a robot that wakes up one day and chooses to make itself breakfast and then go out and kill people, right? Um, Is in realizing like, this is actually not what we're talking about. We're talking about fairly simple, straightforward technology that is very clear and coming on the horizon. And since then, we've seen quite a bit of convergence around thinking that is similar to that of the position of the ICRC. And so the ICRC this past year came out... Which is the Red Cross, right? The Red Cross, yeah. The Red Cross, the sort of custodians of international humanitarian law. And they've said, as I mentioned, that existing humanitarian law is really not sufficient to cover the threats posed by this type of technology and proposed sort of a three-pronged policy architecture. So one is a prohibition on weapon systems that are designed or used to target people, so an anti-personnel provision. So these would be the types of weapon systems that look a lot like slaughterbots, right, that we sort of depicted in the film. A prohibition on weapon systems with a high degree of 
predictability, and then regulations on other types of weapon systems. So these would be weapon systems that are really intended to target things that look a lot more like military objects, so like typical anti-material types of systems. And so that framework of prohibitions and regulations has been one that we've seen an increasing number of states rally behind. And in this past December, there was a review conference at the CCW, the fifth review conference. And in that forum, we saw quite a number of states put forth proposals that are supportive or somewhat echoing that architecture as a potential policy solution. And beyond the individual elements of that policy solution, the broader goal of generating stigma around this type of weapon system, right, which has been a very powerful tool for arms control treaties in the past, right? We look at something like the Biological Weapons Convention, which has, knock on wood, by and large done pretty well since its inception. And it's a treaty with no actual verification regime that is quite robust if you compare it to something like chemical weapons or sort of nuclear verification regimes. And so what has held that, we would argue, is is stigma of like the idea of bioweapons is something that states have all recognized as in no one's best interest and they have largely stayed away from. That Stigma-generating mechanism is needed on autonomous weapon system. The idea that how we as a human species choose to use AI, it should not be using AI to delegate life and death decisions and let software decide who lives and who dies. And the broader just recognition that doing this and making this decision isn't in anyone's best interest. So I would say there's the stigma-generating side of actual action on this issue within the UN ecosystem. And there is actually real progress and coherence around support for some sort of architecture of prohibitions and regulations. So this is all about creating a taboo around the use of these weapons, making it so that if anyone is to use these first, then they become somewhat pariahs on the international stage and are held to account for their actions. And I assume then that your latest video of Slaughterbots, Slaughterbots 2, is all about reinforcing this taboo and and showing some of the moral, ethical and just broader dilemmas of use. So can you tell us some of the issues that you raise in this latest film? So when we made the first Slaughterbots film, that was really to put the issue on the map and to create a visualization that made real for people what it was we were talking about. Because this issue of AI and integration and AI decision-making and weapon systems, it's very confusing and it can feel very far off and not very tangible. It goes over my head at the best of times, Amelia. (laughs) Me as well, actually. And I've been in this for quite a while. But it, it was to demonstrate and make real for people like, this is what we're talking about and this is how it could affect your life, your everyday life, doing your everyday things, and this is why you should care about it. But in that first video, we didn't really touch on what to do about it or what's getting us there. And so that is what prompted us to make our most recent film, which was Slaughterbots, If Human Kill. And that was a film, short film that we made in three parts. So the first part of that film dives into this idea of what does a world look like with lethal autonomous weapons and not just what does the world look like in a day in the life of someone in the United States, but what does it look like anywhere you live on the planet and really highlighting given the proliferation risk of these systems, there's not going to be any place that is really safe 
from attacks of this sort using this type of technology. So that's the kind of the scary part, right? Of, and also showing that it's not just on battlefields. That actual le- most likely use case of these weapon systems is going to be outside of what we think of as the traditional military context. The second piece of the film was covering the type of rhetoric that we have today that's driving us on this path towards developing these technologies. We almost joke is a bit of like the darkly comedic section of, of the film, uh, really delving into like, these are the ideas that are, and logical fallacies that are pushing us towards an endpoint in which we develop these systems, even though it's so clear that it's not a good thing for our future and our world. Whether you care about it from a moral perspective, a security perspective, or just a, a safety and stability perspective. And the last part of the film was like, well, what if we make a different choice and what can we do about it? The future with autonomous weapons is not an inevitable one. And we are still at the point in the development of this technology where this threat could be curtailed and we actually can do something about it and this not need to be resigned to some kind of inevitable fate. This really picks up on an imagined world in which the types of policy conversations that are happening today and picking up steam actually come to fruition? What would it be like for a secretary general or for some UN official to give the speech about what it means for the world to actually do something about this issue? And so it was really based on the policy frameworks that are happening and conversations that are happening today about what would be meaningful things that we could do to prevent ending up in that sort of dystopian endpoint to illustrate, like, we can still do something about this and the window has not yet really closed for us. So from that piece, I think it's maybe slightly more optimistic of an end note. And also highlighting that in that last piece, there's so many ways that AI can be beneficial, both not only in the civilian contexts that we think about, but also in military contexts. And to be able to realize the full potential for AI We need to be very clear about what we're not going to use AI for, what uses are off the table. And that, in our view, will help steer sort of away from the bad uses and towards the good uses of the technology. Well, perhaps we can finish on that brighter note. What do you think are the good uses of AI that we really need to shield and protect for the betterment of the world in which we live, not to be sullied, of course, by the more hostile, nefarious use of artificial intelligence? What is the good that we need to watch out for? To answer this question, I think I'll look back on history and many of sort of the people engaged on this issue come from the technologist community. This is an issue that people who are the creators and architects of AI care deeply about because they see it as so important to take the bad uses off of the table to enable the good uses to flourish. And so we look at the history of biology as a field. So biology in sort of its early days when it was really picking up with modern techniques, we had the Bioweapons Convention, which took weaponization of the technology off of the table. And we now associate biology with amazing things, right? We've transformed agriculture, we've cured all these diseases, biotech is flourishing, and it does all these things that people would probably ascribe as good things for humanity. We look at another example, which is nuclear, right? Nuclear technology was a technology that in its nascent days was weaponized, and everyone had the image of what a nuclear weapon could do. And 
That curtailed the potential of the nuclear energy industry, arguably for decades to come. And even still today, that industry that could do so much for getting us carbon neutral and solving climate change faces a serious stigma because of its weaponization. And so we look at AI as probably the next most powerful technology to be developed in the categories, along with sort of the biologies and the chemistries and the nuclears of the world. And really, every industry is one that could benefit from AI. Curing diseases, to making our supply chain work better, to creating jobs, to alleviating poverty. There was a study done that AI has the potential to accelerate every single one of the UN's sustainable development goals if used well. So the upside for AI, I think, is so important. What we don't want to happen to the field is to go the way of nuclear. If this technology is weaponized and the experiences that we have with artificial intelligence are that of slaughterbots, of people being slaughtered using AI based on a sensor profile, the ability for the field to realize all of those incredible benefits will be curtailed forever. And it will also set a precedent that there's going to be a lot of challenging conversations we need to have ahead of how we want to use artificial intelligence in society and what's ethical and what's safe and what's not. And if we today say, you know what, it's totally okay and we condone AI making the decision over who lives and who dies and who to kill, it really sets us back quite a bit in a lot of the ethical conversations that we're going to have to have ahead. Well, Amelia, thank you so much for your time. And tell us, where can people watch the videos? Where can they learn more about what it is that your organization does? And where can they get involved? Absolutely. So uh, our organization is the Future of Life Institute at futureoflife.org. You can watch our film there. We also have a dedicated site that focuses just on the topic of autonomous weapons, autonomousweapons.org. So you can go there to watch the films and to learn more about this issue. And I thoroughly suggest you go and watch the films. We'll put links to them in the show notes. Don't watch them before you go to bed. Instead, have a sit down, pour yourself a drink, and then watch them. They're not the ones to watch just before you go to sleep, are they, Amelia? Indeed. No, I've made that error in having people tell me, why did I watch that before bed? So watch it, just not before bedtime. Amelia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, James. Thanks so much for listening, and if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.